Hello, friend. I say it every time, but I mean it sincerely every time. Thank you so much for continuing to listen and for continuing to support The Tully Show. In the past, every single time I've asked who people want to hear me talking to on this show, I have heard Alan Cross's name, and I'm happy at long last we finally made that conversation happen. I think you all are going to enjoy this one. Real quick, before we get into it, a reminder, patreon.com slash Mike Tully. Something different happening there all the time. Yesterday, it was a historical look back at 1979. Muppets and Nazi war criminals and Daisy Dukes and... Tehranian hostage crises. If you thought 2020's got a lot going on, take a look at what was happening in 1979. I'm putting up a new music pod today. Tomorrow it will be Tully time. Fun for the whole family, except for children, at patreon.com slash Mike Tully. Patreon.com slash Mike Tully. Okay, you ready to start this show? Coming to you live on tape from my nine-year-old son's bedroom in rapidly gentrifying Culver City, adjacent California, boasting a partially obstructed view of the world-famous Hollywood sign. This is The Tully Show. I am your host, Mike Tully. Joining me today by popular demand, a writer, a broadcaster, the overseer of a now nearly 30-year run for the venerable ongoing history of new music, a bona fide Canadian national treasure, and above all else, a self-described music geek. Hello and welcome, Alan Cross. Wait, wait a second. You said by popular demand. Who, who is actually demanding this? Demand's a strong word, but okay. by, popu- by popular request, every time I ask people who I ought to speak to on this show, your name invariably comes up and has for, for a couple of years running now. Okay, well, that's odd, but great. Here we well, are. I, I was part of a radio show that was on Sirius XM and Sirius XM Canada called The Jason Ellis Show for, for over a decade, and so we accumulated a, a pretty substantial Canadian following which definitely has something to do with the overlap, but also I do tons and tons of episodes about music and I'm a big music geek myself. And so I think those two factors um, put together are what brought have brought us together here today. Fair enough, let's go. Okay, so first, before we talk about music, some background on you. Uh, your creation story, as it were, centers around jukeboxes and a bunch of seven inch vinyl records that got more or less literally dumped in your lap as someone who was also raised with a jukebox in my life, my family owned a bar that had, you know, Stand By Your Man and Roy Orbison and all that stuff in it. What sorts of seven inches would we be talking about here? Well, the ones I remember were, let's see, Tom T. Hall, I Like Beer. Ah, what was that one about? Uh, no idea. Never <laughs> yeah, listened yeah. to it because I've never <laughs> been much of a country fan. Uh, a Golden Earring Radar Love was in there. I, I okay. know that there were about 60 of the seven inch singles that my uh, uncle dumped on me. He was working for the local telephone system and it was moonlighting on the side servicing jukeboxes. So he would go on his route and uh, put the new records in and take the old records out. Now, the old records by this time were completely worn out. So it was either throw them away or give them to his nephew. And in this particular case, he had a box of 60 that he gave to me. And uh, I had already been something of a a top 40 fan. This is in the 1970s. And uh, I went through the box and I found, I remember it was either 27 or 30 that I thought I could use. The rest were, you know, stiffs or country songs or something like that. And uh, I still have them someplace. Um, They may be at my parents' house, but they were never, ever thrown out. There was, needless to say, there was something about music and books when they were more apt to be something that you could get your hands on. It's, you know, books are actually managing to survive and and thrive in the digital age, um, whereas physical copies of music has become a little bit more of a niche thing. I see you talk and tweet quite a bit about vinyl so clearly you still have some affinity there you also put a um a poll up i didn't see the results about apparently there is a cassette renaissance 
underway. I can see you smirking. I said, cause yeah. cassettes were, I, I had 45s. I was at the tail end. I had the John Cougar Mellon camps and the go-go's and the, the cover art was clearly superior than anything a single had to offer. Uh, a single, maybe a little bit more, um, user friendly, but in your opinion and in, in based on the results you got from your poll, is there anything to romanticize about the audio cassette? Well, I think you're asking two different questions. Is sure. there a cassette renaissance happening? Uh, if you look at the raw numbers, the answer is no. Hmm. Most cassettes in the United States right now are destined for prisons. And I'm not being facetious about that because uh, you can't have a CD in prison because you snap one of those things in half and you've got yourself a nice little shiv. Ah. Uh, there are possibilities for getting a you know portable music player where you can stream music. Um, but cassettes seem to be the best thing for, for the prison population in the United States with a incarcerated population of about two and a half million. Uh, there are actually companies that specialize in releasing cassettes for prisoners. So if we take them out of the equation, uh, then we have a whole bunch of people who are apparently buying cassettes without anything to play them on, because I don't know if you've been, been to a Best Buy or anything lately, getting a cassette player is almost impossible. So uh, they're buying these things as tchotchkes, as souvenirs, as, as bits of merch and, and not playing them. And if you look at the raw numbers, the actual number of people who were buying these pre-recorded cassettes, it's really, really, really low. Now, I don't have any American figures, but here in Canada, uh, I can tell you that they don't even break out the sales of cassettes from all the other formats. They just lump it in a category called other, which includes things like music DVDs and a couple of other things. And uh, here in Canada, they've sold uh, 7,500 of others, other formats since the beginning of the year in eight months. So uh, it's, it's, it's not really happening. People are wishing that the cassette comes back and there are certain people that fetishize the cassette thinking, oh man, it was so great. You know, we made these mixtapes and, you know, it took so long to put them together and they were made with so much care and love and attention. Uh, yeah, that, that's true. But uh, when it comes to the general public, uh, it's, it's, it's not happening. Cassettes are, are, are a horrible, awful, uh, outdated, obsolete music storage technology. Let it go. Let them go. They're just a waste of, of time. Anybody who romanticizes cassettes today doesn't rem remember what it was like when they were the only form of portable music format that we could take with us outside the 8-track. And I never want to go back to the hassles that cassettes offer to us. Yeah, and if, if you're fetishizing them, you probably never had to stick a pencil inside one of them and then re-spool. You know, I passed a business yesterday here in Los Angeles that had a, a sign outside that said tape recorders, but just beneath it, it said VCRs. So... <laughs> <laughs> If you know anybody who needs a tape recorder, I, I got the spot for you. Yeah, the mixtape was was the romance of it. That was the first time that any of us were allowed to personalize, customize what we were listening to. And I also got it in my head that the second Oasis album sounded better if you duped it and then duped it and then duped it. So it sounded even more like it had been recorded underwater. But this is this is a niche. This is a niche market for sure. Well, I tell you, the third Oasis album, actually, that actually <laughs> yeah. works for it because uh, Noel Gallagher was on so much coke. And he talks about this, Yep. that he had zero high frequency hearing. So he just kept dubbing over and over and over again. If you listen to that record on the CD, it's pretty shrill. And that's because that's all Noel could hear. Uh, now he realizes that, yeah, you know what? There was a little little too much of the uh, the Peruvian marching powder there to, to make my ears correct. So, uh, yeah, if you want to make that record sound better, that's what you should do. That's the Be Here Now record. That's of course that's be here now. They went out on the second album and got an amazing drummer and then utterly buried him on the third record. And Noel also said about that that he's happy it flopped because had that somehow managed to be successful, he would have grown a mustache and started wearing a cape. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I want to talk to you about Oasis. I know that you uh recently posted episodes about literally not even just the band the band, but the the sibling rivalry. Um, a little bit more just on you, so everybody knows who we're talking to. What was your first album? What was the first album that really got its hooks into you? Uh, the first album I bought with my own money is Elton John's Greatest Hits, Volume 1. I paid $4.99 with it, or for it uh, with money from my paper route. And my mm -hmm. mother was absolutely, utterly horrified that I would spend that kind of money on such garbage. Um, she said that I should be saving it towards something you know, much more useful, like uh, my college education. Mom, mom, mom. 
I'm 14. Yeah. Um, I want, I want music. So I bought that record and I still have it. It's pretty beaten up, but I still have it. Yeah, I, I, I took show uh, snow shoveling money and bought a, a Theater of Pain era live bootleg of Motley Crue at the Nassau Coliseum. My parents said, uh, similarly criticized my decision, the difference between me and you. My parents were right. Yeah, well, yeah. yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I get the point. My parents still have no idea what I do for a living. I was just out to see them for the first time in two years a couple of weeks ago. And uh, that was uh, the day I was leaving. Charlie Watts died. So uh, yeah. when that happens in this country... Uh, every single network and print publication calls me for some kind of comment and analysis. So just as I was about to leave for the airport to fly home, uh, all these calls and all these emails come in and uh, I'm sitting on my parents' couch and I'm feeling these calls and Zoom uh, Zoom things and everything. And uh, mom's just looking at me going, why are they calling you? <laughs> well, you've only been doing this for the better part of 30 years now. Give her Give her time. Uh, 40, actually. It was, uh, I'm, I'm, I'm coming up on my 40th anniversary doing this on November the 13th. Since you bring it up, let's talk about that. Uh, Charlie Watts passing away. You asked the question on, on a post somewhere, is there a Rolling Stones without Charlie Watts? Now, I am not a Rolling Stones person at all. It's never really resonated with me. I'm not a classic rock guy in general. And yet, whatever faint hope plan I ever held in my mind that maybe someday I would pony up and go see the Rolling Stones on one of the the latest farewell tour. For me, that kind of ended with him passing away, despite the fact that on the depth chart, he's, you know, for most people in terms of their, their iconography, he's, you know, he's closer to the bottom than the top. What do you make of the Rolling Stones without Charlie Watts? A couple of things. First of all, he was a visual anchor. Yeah. Rick, uh, sorry, Mick and Keith and uh, Ronnie could go out and do their own thing, be all the you know, super flamboyant out front, and they could fly off with all kinds of improvisations and experiments on stage. And they knew that Charlie was always there in, in the background to provide a safety net for them to come back to the beat and keep, uh, carry on. Um, it may have sounded like on the surface that the Rolling Stones were about to fly apart in all directions at any second, but the answer was no, they had Charlie keeping the beat and keeping everything together. Um, secondly, he was an original member of the band. Um, there was Keith, there was Mick, there was Charlie, there was Bill Wyman who retired in 1993, and then Brian Jones who died in 1969. Ronnie Wood's still the, the new guy after joining in 1975. Uh, when you start getting down to just two original members of a band that originally had five, then you're starting to get into that weird slippery territory. I mean, if 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 Mick or or Keith uh, were to die, uh, the Stones are dead. They're gone. Um, with Charlie, they're on the precipice. Uh, he was such an integral part of their sound and such an integral part of their look, and they were a big part of the iconography. Um, because, you know, like I said, he had been there since 1963. He had never, ever missed a gig in that entire time. So that, you know, there are some people who are saying, well, is this the time for the Stones to hang it up? And there are, there's, I think, about 50-50. So we'll see what happens. They have to honor these dates in America uh, later this year with, with Steve Jordan, the drummer that uh, um, Keith Richards knows really well. And we'll see how it goes. And, and I think that, you know, when it's all over and done with, so maybe around Christmas, uh, they'll have a, a, a band meeting and figure out exactly what's going on. Now, the other thing to consider is that the Rolling Stones are a multi, multi, multi-million dollar business operation that makes a lot of money touring. Um, do they want to fold the business? Which is different than folding the band. And Keith... Or, well, Mick especially, is a real businessman. Um, so he's going to maybe make the case that they continue. So we'll see. We don't really know. Yeah, the, the calculus is so different for us, obviously, than it is for them. I've quoted many times, you know, um, paraphrasing Angus Young about ACDC carrying on. He said, my options are kind of getting up on stage and having a bunch of people cheer for me and then cashing a million dollar check or sitting at home. And when you look at it from that way, the only rational decision is 
to keep playing as long as people pay tickets if that's something you still enjoy doing. And in that case, who cares what anybody thinks outside of the 60,000 people in the stadium? Yeah, so we've got, uh, there's, there's four guys that, that, you know, Bond's gone a long time ago. Uh, so we've got four guys, you know, Phil Rudd's back with them. Uh, Cliff is with them. Angus is there. Uh, Brian is there. Just no Malcolm. So you got 80% of the band. It looked really tough for ACDC a while back when uh, just about everybody was was gone except except Angus and, and Axl Rose was singing. But uh, I talked to the band back uh, last November, I think it was, whenever the before the last album came out. And, uh, you know, Brian and, and seemed to be fine. Cliff was into it. Angus was into it. Um, Phil had come back from, you know, his time in the wilderness. He had a weird period. Uh, so they're going to continue going on. I mean, they're just, you know, ACDC is just like another one of these bands that people have to see. And how many, you know, they've been around since 19, what, 73? So we're looking at 50 years of ACDC. Can you imagine a world without them? At the same time, can you imagine a world without the Rolling Stones? I mean, these these older bands, these heritage bands form the the, the superstructure of our musical heritage. What are we going to do when they inevitably shuffle off this mortal coil? All these bands that several generations have grown up with, knowing that they're, they've always been there and hopefully will always be there, they won't be. And over the next five seven to seven years, we're going to see what could be best described as a, a mass extinction event. And I mean, I've got... As, as, a, as a radio guy, I've got something like 50 or 60 obituaries pre-written because, you know, when somebody goes, you got to get it on the air as soon as you possibly can. I'm curious, what's the most, can you say what the most recent one is that you composed? Uh, I did, I think it was David Gilmore, as a matter of fact, just as a, precaution yeah you can't know exactly you're yeah, right yeah no not because you, you heard something through the grapevine no no no, no. there's right. nothing that we've heard through the grapevine it's just that okay so you know david gilmore 75 years old uh mm -hmm. paul mccartney's you know 79 ringo stars 81 or 80 or 81 yeah roger waters is 77 i mean we start looking at the actuarial tables and it's yes. like okay <laughs> we gotta start preparing for what is going to happen it's grisly and ghoulish and gross but it is what it is. I, I've been in, I was in real radio just long enough to know that sometimes the jock is going away over the weekend. And so you maybe want to record an obituary for so-and-so who's in the hospital right now, just in case that person happens to pass and you need to have that on the air to sound topical. Yeah. It's a I, I, had an, I had an Eddie Van Halen one ready for about two years yeah. before he finally passed. Right. And, and uh, that wasn't, that was uh, not a crazy thing that you, uh, that you planned for. I was told I put up the bat signal and asked people what I ought to ask you about. And a number of people specifically on my discord told me that when it comes to you, um, one ought to start with Morrissey. Do you know why they would say that? Why I would start with Morrissey. What did they want to know about I don't know. They just told me start with Marcy. And when I looked through the earliest episodes of your show, I can see that, you know, that you oh, 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 let me let me back up a little bit. If you had to pick who are your top three bands personally? Oh, personally, yeah. um, I would go with uh, the who we're going to do this in uh, chronological order. Sounds great. Uh, the Beatles, the who um, Nine Inch Nails, Stone Roses, Oasis. And we'll stop there because everybody else has to still prove themselves to me. Okay. So I don't know why I was a, are, are you a, are you a Smith's Morrissey fan? Uh, no, not particularly. Huh. Um, in fact, uh, I was the, you know, working at a, an alternative station here in Canada that played a lot of Smith's and then a lot of Morrissey. I was the one guy on staff who said, what a whiner. Yeah. You know, I, I, you know, Paul Simon is, is a lyrical poet. Morrissey writing songs like please 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 let me get what i want is not on that same level so there was a guy uh, that i worked with uh, named scott and and he was the world's biggest uh, smiths fan and we would have arguments all the time he would try to explain to me the the sensitivity that morrissey displayed in his music and his <laughs> lyrics and and i would go he's a wimp um no now since then i've since i i've, I've come to 
um, appreciate why certain there's a certain group of people who, who really gravitate to this guy and to the Smiths in general. And okay, you know what? I respect that. It's just not for me. Um, I would put the Smiths in a category of bands that a lot of other people like that I just don't get. Who else would you put in that category out of curiosity? Okay. Uh, Arcade Fire? Yeah. I would, uh, oh, here it is. I'll put Bruce Springsteen in that uh, category. I mean, I oh, totally, he, he he belongs there. He's not for everyone. Yeah, he, he isn't. I mean, uh, again, I think there is there is an international aspect to this. Uh, Springsteen is is maybe the the prototypical, um, you know, American urban rock star. Um, and there's just so much of, of what he sings about and the experiences in his songs that don't apply to countries other than the United States. So while I get that he's a fantastic performer and a great songwriter and a great performer and all the rest of it, uh, do I ever decide, you know what, I want to hear Darkness on the Edge of Town again? No, <laughs> no, it just doesn't happen. Well, he and I'm from New Jersey. And so it's sort of a thing that gets put in you when you're little. And you, there's two kinds of people, I think, from New Jersey, people who love Bruce Springsteen their entire lives and then people who grow up and then one day when they're 30 hear my hometown on the radio and start crying and realize that it's gotten inside of you whether you liked it or not but I'm not sure what I grew up within an hour of where he grew up I don't understand what his accent is I don't I don't relate to the America that he's talking about I don't know maybe if my dad had worked down at the factory I I, I it's funny because I just I've done episodes on my on my patreon recently I call it just bands you might like, where I kind of try to explain, I like this band, maybe you'll like them. I literally did the Smiths one month, and then I did Morrissey. I'm sorry, I did uh, Bruce Springsteen about two months later. And you, you, trying to hear it through other people's ears, you you get the Morrissey is, uh, to me, he's the foie gras of music. The reason why people like him is the exact same reason why other people find him uh, nauseating. Okay, now that's interesting that you would compare Morrissey to foie gras, the, the super, super, super vegetarian. Uh, to what I believe to be God's food. Right. Um, uh, okay. Interesting juxtaposition of terms. Okay. Oh, by the way, if you hear some sort of rumbling in the background, that's the uh, 13-year-old English Bull Terrier. She's down here in the office with me um, snoring. That's terrific. And I meant to warn you off the top, the last show that I did uh, halfway through my recorder all of a sudden made me sound like a futuristic robot. So if all of a sudden I need to I need to pause and reboot here, uh, that's that's the reason why. Okay. OK, let me see. Oh, yeah. OK. Looking through the most recent episodes of the ongoing history of new music. I know these are not always new just because you're in hiatuses and posting things. You did a public interview with Daniel Lenoir about the Joshua Tree, I, I, I honestly, I didn't. A, I didn't know he was Canadian. B, I didn't even know he had been a recording artist. I literally know him as U2's producer. Essentially, did you have a relationship leading up to that in any way, professionally? Yeah, I've known Dan for for quite some time. As a matter of fact, um, we God, we go back to certainly the early 2000s um, because he was in the Toronto where he's got a studio here now um, and he and I would run across each other at various events and um, here in Canada he had uh, uh, well he released a number of albums internationally and we played some of his records and so yeah I've, I've, I've known Dan for for uh, quite some time good dude I really uh, really like him his brother uh, died recently so I haven't had a chance to talk to him since uh, since that happened out of all of the landmark albums that you could have spoken to, the producer of, I, I, I feel like one of the big U2 albums would have been at the top of the list of um, the albums where I really would want to hear from the producer. You think about, you know, it's cool. Anybody who's in the room when a classic album's being made, that's great. And obviously they had input, but like Mutt Lang with the classic Def Leppard stuff. Mm. I think of the stuff that I'm under the impression and U2 has never done anything to dissuade me of the notion that what that he and Brian Eno basically function as temporary band members that sort of helicopter in and are functional members of the band while an album is being made. And then they are gone again until the next album is being made either in that interview or in your earlier interactions with him. Did he say anything that you found especially illuminating or surprising about his role in the making of the Joshua tree or just in the making of that album in general? Well, the idea was that both he and Eno and Eno was the lead producer on this that uh, they were able to corral U2's creativity. Now, this is a band that has four members that have you know all kinds of ideas coming all the time. Uh, and then sometimes nobody has any ideas whatsoever. 
Uh, we can go to the Octung Baby album. That record took a long time to make, and there were some real problems in the beginning making that record because the band just couldn't find find the sound. They couldn't find the group. But if we, uh, you know, the first album was The Unforgettable Fire, um, and and what you two needed to do with that fourth album is to take things beyond where they had been with the first three records. And uh, so, so Eno would be there to help them think about how to do things different. And he had this uh, deck of cards called Oblique Strategies. And uh, whenever you ran into a problem, you would take a card off the top of this deck and it would have some sort of thing saying, you know, play the music inside out or something. I don't know if that was one of them, but something like that. And it would force you to look at what you were doing and maybe uh, focus on things in a different way. Um, with the Unforgettable Fire, uh, Eno said, or it was uh, Lanois that said, look, you guys are just way too tight, way too tense. Uh, we're going to do this next tech, next tech, uh, this next take, uh, and you're all going to be naked. All of us. Take off your clothes. And so that's how they got loosened up. I mean, these are, are some of the things that happen with producers. They're, they're lion tamers, they're psychologists, they're uh, therapists. Uh, their, their job is to get the best possible performance out of, out of a band. And uh, I don't think that there are any co-write credits, or if there are, there are very few. But uh, both Eno and, and Daniel Anwell got back-end points on all the records that they worked with, with you too, uh, worked on with you too, and uh, they've done okay. They've done fine. Yeah, I think those albums uh, ultimately turned to profit. Um, uh, eventually, yeah. yeah. You know, maybe 100 million copies total, so yeah. <laughs> yeah. So I, there was a, you recently, I think, reposted a two-parter on Oasis at War. I find it so fun as a fellow really big Oasis fan um, to focus on the the sibling rivalry i think if i have the quote right noel once referred to liam as a man with a fork in a world of soup yes which so what why do you think you why did you choose to focus on that element of oasis because it's just fun right. i mean it's one of the things that they're known for that tension and animosity between the two of them was a big driving force in the sound and, and image of the band uh and they are so similar yet so different and I, I've talked to both of them individually. I've never talked to both of them together, but I've talked to both of them individually. And Noel is exactly how you would expect Noel to be, you know, quick with a quip, uh, very, very um, uh, quotable. Uh, Liam, on the other hand, is is a yob. And uh, you can't use any of his, his interview clips without bleeping them because there's just so many F-bombs in them. Um, it's It's... It's just a fascinating dynamic between the two of them that resulted in really, you know, two brilliant albums. The first record definitely maybe, and then What's the Story of Morning Glory. After that, you know, it's really hard once you've gone. See, they went from playing bars to playing Nebworth, which is a place in the UK. Uh, they played in front of 250,000 people two years after they released their first album. So they, they were on one of the greatest rocket rides in the history of, of music. And uh, once you do that so quickly, I mean, where do you go? Really, where, 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 where do you go? And, and there were some, some decent, you know, songs, certainly, uh, after, after definitely, um, after What's a Story Morning Glory. But uh, I think they came to a logical conclusion in 2009. And I don't think they had much to offer. Uh, however, if they do decide to get back together, it will be a very large payday for everybody. And I would not rule it out because remember, Noel was the main songwriter. So that means he owns all the publishing. So that means he's getting all the money. Uh, Liam was just the singer. Sorry, Liam, you were just the singer. And uh, he's got a number of love children. He's got a number of ex-wives. He has a clothing company that went bankrupt. Um, he could use the cash. Right, and there have been the public entreaties. It's hard to know how seriously to take either of them on social media. Actually, I don't know if Noel's on there, how seriously to take Liam on there, despite how entertaining he is. 
his voice was really shot really quickly. And I found a lot of their live performances toward the end to be fairly painful. But then Liam put out a record, I don't know, two years ago, and he sounded more like himself than he, than he has in years. Because up until that point, I did not want, I don't want, I personally am a big Smiths fan. I don't want to see a Smiths reunion. Oh, no, 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 never, ever, ever. Please I don't, don't. I don't care to see that. Luckily, neither. Well, I think Johnny would do it, but Marcy doesn't want to do it. I'm not sure, and I'm a big Oasis fan. I don't think I want to see them reunite either unless it's going to be at least 80% of what it was. Yeah, and that's that's going to be really, really tough. Now, yeah. back to Liam, Liam's voice. He, uh, as a young man, never really had any vocal training, so he was singing from his throat. Yeah. And he just blew out those vocal cords, and uh, the smoking and the drinking didn't help either. Yeah. Um, and and I, I'm assuming, and I agree with you, he does sound better now than he did say, 10 years ago um maybe he's he's figured out how to use his voice better you know i guess you've already tipped your hand you said they're maybe one of your top five bands of all time i wonder how we ought to remember them were they really a great rock band or are they closer to like a lenny kravitz where they were a really great pop band that was cloaked in the trappings of classic rock no i think they were i think they were a really good um indie rock band from the uk yeah. And maybe one of the probably the best indie rock band ever from from the UK. Um, next week, I'm going to talk to Alan McGee, the head of Creation Records sure. yeah. and the guy who signed them. So I, I'm going to get a little bit more uh, insight into what he thinks. Well, I know what he's going to think. He's going to take all the credit and, and say that uh, he discovered them, which which he did. He, he, he did and, and made them into one of the biggest bands in the world. So, um, no, I, I think that those first two albums, especially the second album, have um, secured their place in the Pantheon, and we'll be, we'll be listening to those records for quite some time. I mean, when you, when you have a song like um, Live Forever, when you have a song like uh, Wonderwall, uh, you know, they could be released today and still sound great and still be hits. So, um, Noel found the foreign line. He really nailed it for a number of years, and uh, that's all he had to do. Yeah, it was uh, to me a great missed opportunity when they did their MTV Unplugged. I was telling people, I said, "Oh, you guys wait. This is going to be like when Nirvana did their Unplugged." Mm -hmm. Especially since Noel had been doing, you know, there was always a section of their live show where it was just him with an acoustic guitar. And I said, first of all, because I had all these bootlegs, you're going to see a lot of their songs. They're written on acoustic guitars. They're sing-songy. They're children's songs, basically with a lot of distortion. Mm -hmm. you, you'll see many of them. You know, you'll, you'll see um, a different side of these songs. But boy, Noel is going to. He's been in the shadows. He's gonna do. He's gonna do this, and it's gonna. And and then Liam actually sat that out, and I said, "Oh boy, wow, here we go." And then it ended up feeling kind of kind of tossed off. I think of that as a great great missed opportunity in their career. I have a I have a bootleg of that, and I agree. Um, yeah. Liam had laryngitis. Yeah, or right. Something. But he was he was uh, up in, he was up in the Raptors drinking. Yeah, he was. Yeah. It, it actually heckling Noel from 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 the <laughs> yeah, yeah. So uh, you know, it was a missed opportunity because here's what happens with. Uh, well, it used to happen a lot with a lot of British bands. They become very big at home and the media tells them that they are the greatest thing since the Beatles. And then they fly to America or North America and expect everybody just to bow down before them. And it doesn't happen that way. Uh, you, If you are a, a British band, no matter how big you are, you have to prove yourself all over again to American audiences. And that's where Oasis really screwed up. Now, they still sold a ton of copies of What's a Story of Morning Glory. I mean, 10 or 15 million copies in the U.S. But they could have been even bigger and had a better career had they not been such dickheads about the way they approached the American market. Agreed. Agreed. Uh, another episode, I, I, I'm... I apologize if I'm making you recall things that you recorded some time ago. I you um, recently posted or reposted an art an episode on rock snobbery, which struck ah. me as an interesting angle to take. I wonder what angle, like w w why did that? Why was that deserving of an episode for you? Well, I used to be a terrible rock snob. Oh, I, see. I would uh, tell everybody why their favorite band sucked, and after a while, okay, after a very long while. I realized that, that was a pretty stupid way of engaging in music. And it took me many, many decades before I realized that, look, um, listen to what you want. Sorry, respect all music and listen to what you want. 
And I think the, the tipping point came when I bought a copy of Mojo magazine, a very good, very well-written British music magazine. And the cover story was on ABBA. And I thought, oh God, I hate ABBA. But then I read the article and it was, it pointed out why the band was important and why Benny and Bjorn were such geniuses when it came to songwriting and production. And I, that, that turned me around and said, you know what? I've been looking at all this music that I said I hated in a completely wrong manner. Um, so from that point on, I vowed to, like I said, respect all music and listen to what I want. So when it came to rock snobbery, there's a couple of things there. There's this idea that, uh, you know, certain people have better hearing or better taste or listen more intelligently and all that sort of stuff. Um, and then there's this idea that they speak in terms and use words that everyday, you know, fans don't understand. And I think that's unfair because it's like you're speaking a different language and you're excluding a whole bunch of people who may want to win to, to get into the club, but uh, can't because they don't speak the language. So that was, that was the, those were the, the uh, main driving forces of me doing that particular episode. It's not surprising to me that it would have been a European publication lionizing ABBA. They've, I, I lived, I went to school in England for one year and I had, I had no idea here they're, you know, seventies kitsch on par with something the Osbens might have done over there. I knew, I, I found it interesting. I knew around 2000 that they had publicly turned down a, a $1 billion offer to reunite. And mind you, this was when a billion dollars would still buy you something. This was, this is, this is 20 years ago. And I was shocked to see, and, and, and I loved the reason I loved, loved, loved the reason I'm sure they made plenty of money in the seventies, but still they turned down a billion bucks in 2000. And one of the two girls said, I don't think anybody wants to see us in those little skirts anymore. That was her whole public reason. Now they've now, now apparently they have, they have taken the money and I can only imagine what well, the offer is now. Yeah. But they are going to go on tour as holograms. I did not know that. Now, if you look at all the stories from the last week or so, you'll see them posing in motion capture suits designed by Industrial Light Magic. And they are going to go on tour with a 10-piece live band and a four-piece them as holograms uh, as they would have looked in 1979. I was That's wondering. What's yeah, happening. well, there you go. That 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 answers it perfectly. I was wondering why George Lucas was getting credit in, in regard to the the ABBA reunion. That makes perfect sense. Now, are they are they singing live backstage or are the holograms pre recorded? It's all pre recorded. Oh. It's all going to be pre recorded. They're just going to put this all out on. Um, well, for the, they're going to start with a show in in, in England uh, next year. I think it's next May, and they're actually building a special theater for it. Because to get this, this hologram thing off the ground and to do it properly, you need a lot of special equipment. And I can see ABBA becoming uh, a real vanguard in this idea of hologram performances. Yes. So they would have long residences in places like Las Vegas, where you could go see ABBA, the ABBA experience, the ABBA voyage. Uh, they've got 22 songs that they're going to play in this particular set, including some, some new ones. And uh, it'll be a 90-minute set, which is perfect for Las Vegas. You you know, you come in, you see the first show, you go back to the uh, to the slot machines. Another crowd comes in, paying seventy-five dollars a ticket, and you can do this forever because you don't have to worry about the performers getting old. You don't have to worry about the performers dying. You don't have to worry about the performers getting divorced or fighting. It is uh, it's a, a brilliant. Uh, money spinner. And I think they learned a lot from uh, the Mamma Mia musical, because if we could make this kind of money just by giving a, you know, our music to a, a producer who will turn it into this musical, well, the next logical step is, well, let's just give them our avatars and turn it into something that will spend money for the rest of the life of the universe. Yeah, and and again, as with ACDC still performing live, who's it, who's it hurting? And and also, what 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 indie rock credibility did uh, did ABBA have to worry about in in the first place? They don't. People people want to hear Waterloo. They want to hear Dancing Queen. They want to yeah. hear 
uh, you know, SOS. They want to hear all those songs as they remember them from the band they remember uh, from the 1970s and the very early 1980s. Remember, the band's last album was 1982. Their last performance was 1986. If you've seen current pictures of them, they don't look, they're, they're older. They, they, they're, they're, they're senior citizens. But if you can recreate the ABBA experience so that you, as a fan, are transported back to 1979 when you were younger. I mean, you're going to do it, right? As I say, it's not hurting anybody. Why not? And I, and I agree exactly. with you. And I agree with you that that uh, where ABBA goes, probably many, many more bands are to to follow. Don't be surprised if the Rolling Stones are also playing at Caesar's Palace five to ten years from now. Well, I talked to somebody who was much smarter than me when it comes to these holograms, and he was convinced that hologram technology is going to be used for for things like these residences. Um, I mean, if you've gone to Las Vegas, I mean, I went to see Love for the Beatles thing a couple of times. It was really, really good, but there was there were no Beatles involved. Now, yeah. can you imagine if somehow Paul McCartney materialized on stage and saying, hey, Jude, with the rest of the audience and it looked like Paul McCartney and sounded like Paul McCartney? Holy crap. Um, and if, if you think for a second that no one is thinking about how are we going to maintain the Beatles legacy after Paul and Ringo are gone, you're crazy. I mean, they, of course they are because it's a multi-billion dollar business, this, this Beatles thing. And they're going to do whatever they can to, to keep it moving forward. One of my listeners asked me to get your thoughts on the Canadian media sovereignty laws, uh, CanCon, which is essentially this um, policy whereby it's on television, but for your area of expertise, radio, a certain percentage, a substantial percentage of the music that gets played on the air has to be legitimately Canadian music. I know it can't just be somebody who was born there. It's got to be somebody who, you know, meets an, uh, a, a fairly rigorous threshold of, of current Canadianness. Yes, there there is a, a series of formulas that you have to fulfill in order to be declared Canadian. Um, the reason is very simple. Before 1971, these laws came into effect in, in mid-January 1971. There really was no Canadian music industry whatsoever. We had no recording studios. We had branch plants, record labels. We had no very few domestic record labels. Basically, we were taking whatever the United States and the UK sent us. And, uh, you know, we lived next to the largest exporter of popular culture in the known universe. And in order to maintain a distinct domestic culture, we had to put up some, some barriers or at least create some incentives for domestic artists to be able to somehow be heard and, and develop as, uh, as artists with the population uh, in light of the fact that we're right next door to the United States and we're getting all this music from Britain. Now, it was a cultural policy in the sense that we had to develop our own musicians, but it was also an industrial policy. So we it helped us build the recording studios, the record labels, it brought in agents and managers and promoters and producers and roadies and all the other things that we would need to create a domestic music industry and it worked I mean, it, it was terrible for the first 10 years so from 71 through to the early 80s there was a lot of crap making it on the radio that should not have it was 30 percent so three out of every 10 records you played on the radio between 6 a.m and midnight had to be of canadian origin and there was because we were so young and so inexperienced at, at making this kind of making music to stand up next to the best in the world Oh boy, eh, there was some really, really crappy stuff. Um, however, by the time we get to the early 80s and mid 80s, things begin to turn around. We have uh, artists who aren't bailing uh, Canada for the United States. They're staying at home and having decent domestic careers. Uh, we have good recording studios. We have good producers. We have uh, uh, people actually like Canadians actually demanding to hear Canadian music, which is something that never happened before. And then we get to the 1990s, things just blow up. And there's this, this uh, well of, of nationalism, musical nationalism that takes over. And uh, now, you know, well, before COVID and everything else happened, you can have a very, very good domestic music career in, in Canada, despite having a population of 38 million people, which is less than California. So all in all, you feel that it obviously was necessary. It's hard for me to understand because, I mean, for me, I go, okay, well, Leonard 
Cohen's Canadian, Neil Young's Canadian, uh, there's Canadian authors, there's Canadian television. What was it specifically about the the record music industry that needed it then? And and you, does it still have a role in today's Canada? That's, that's a debate. Uh, there are a lot of people who believe that uh, we can now stand on our own two feet. We yeah. don't require these, these quotas. Um, the other issue is that radio is a legacy um, media, yeah. uh, mature media, and a lot of people are getting their music now from streaming, which is not regulated under Canadian content laws, uh, at least not yet. There's a, a plan to rewrite the broadcast law for Canada that may require something. We don't know what that is, but we're in the midst of an election campaign right now. So that particular bill has been punted and we won't see any uh, revisiting of the Broadcast Act for, for quite some time. Um, good question. Uh, I, I still, you know, you have to understand that, that, that Canadians believe that we are distinct and different from Americans. Uh, and you are, and I, and I, and I, 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 I get that. I accept that. And we, uh, you know, we, we don't get the second, uh, we don't get the second amendment. We don't understand why you don't have universal health care. Um, and we're generally less politicized than, than the U.S. And it's very difficult when you have so much music, so much entertainment, so much media coming across the border that we honestly are, are, are united in not wanting to become a Kardashian nation. And uh, you know, we, well, if we're going to do that, we're going to have our own Kardashians. So that's, that's what it's all about. We're in the same position as New Zealand, who is completely... Um, you know, has 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 to deal with all the music and all the entertainment coming from uh, Australia, and we're in the same place as Ireland. That's right. Which has to deal with whatever's coming across the Irish Sea from from the UK. So, if you're going to have a country, you have to have a viable and thriving culture. And if you have to put up a few roadblocks to external culture, well, that seems to be something that people are willing to uh, put up with at least for the time being. We'll see how long that manages, that that stays. Right. In so many ways, the internet is just going to change your, effectively change your laws, whether <laughs> whatever any politician may want. Well, that's the interesting thing. It, it may not change the laws. Yeah. If it doesn't change the laws, it's not going to change the outcome. Exactly. Right. Uh, one final thing I was just going through, uh, Canadian acts in, in, in looking a bit into that previous question. Where are you on crash test dummies? Um, they were a, uh, they're from my, my hometown, Winnipeg. Uh-huh. Um, they will tell you, I mean, when, when I was talking to Brad Roberts back in the day, uh, they realized that their, their, their success was something of a fluke. Sure. Oh, of course, of course. <laughs> and, and, uh, they're just like, okay, it was a hit. We'll take it. And, uh, you know, they, they had really two albums that, that people paid attention to. Mm -hmm. And uh, then, then that was it. I, I don't know where Brad is now. I haven't seen him for quite some time. I haven't seen him for about 10 or 12 years. But uh, I would imagine him and Ellen are, are doing something. I thought, and uh, I don't even want to speculate. I thought I'd heard some stuff about what he might be up to uh, uh, or not up to personally. But I, I, I'm a, a huge fan. I actually thought the second album was was terrific and i'll tell anybody who will listen that i mean if you didn't like mm, 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 i'm not gonna tell you the rest of the album doesn't sound anything like that but if a part of you did like mm, 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 there's about nine more songs uh yes. <laughs> like that it was a surprisingly I, satisfying I, album. listen that record sold six million copies in the u.s it did well it's good the follow-up singles are good yeah but you know there are bands that somehow end up in the well, let's make fun of them pile. Yeah, right. And that's you know, Crash Test Dummies are there. Uh, Smash Mouth is there. Creed is there. Um, fair or not, it's what happens when. See, the the history is written by critics, and if the critics deem that your music was disposable, you don't get remembered, and you don't get uh, memorialized. Uh, which is really unfair because you may have been extremely popular, and your music may have meant an awful lot of meant an awful lot to, to an awful lot of people. Uh, but that's, that's how it works. I mean, there's a, a guy by the name of Paul Whiteman, who was a gigantic big band leader in the 1920s, 1930s, but he was super mainstream, super mass appeal, super, uh, you know, 
pleasing the crowd. And when it came to comparing him and his band to, you know, uh, Benny Goodman and so on, um, he was considered to be, you know, the Backstreet Boys of his day. And uh, as a result, nobody remembers him, even though he was hugely popular and his music meant an awful lot to an awful lot of people. So what is next uh, ongoing history of new music? What, how, many, how, how many subjects do you feel you have left to tackle? You're, no, I've, you're 700 uh, odd episodes in. Episodes in. No, 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 936. I apologize. Yeah, um, I've, I've uh, written programs up until the end of this year. Mm-hmm. And so I'm going to start in 2022 on Tuesday, as a matter of fact. Um, I have stuff sketched out until next spring. And that will change. You know, one of the things that changes things very quickly is somebody dies. So you have to put together a, a retrospective very, very quickly. Um, I, you know, here's the way I describe it. It's, um, okay, it's Sunday night, family guy is over, and you still have a paper due first thing tomorrow morning and you haven't started. You know that feeling that you get in the pit of your stomach? I have that every week. Uh, because I have to come up with an idea of or a new radio show. I have to come up with 35 of these radio shows, which are, you know, every 12, uh, yeah, 35, one a week for 35 weeks. Um, and then those programs are edited into uh, into podcasts. I just every single time when I think I've run out of things to talk about, something else pops into my head. So my goal, my goal is to make it to at least a thousand. Sure. And after that, we'll see if anybody wants any more. Well, so uh, to do it to, on the current projection, um, the thousandth show will be sometime either late 2023 or early 2024. Well, one way or another, best of luck with that. I have a feeling that by the time you get to a thousand, you'll have a couple more things pop into your head. Oh, it's, it's very possible. It's very possible. One of the, the, the frightening things, though, is that with um, music today is we're not building superstars like we used to. No. You know, uh, if you count, you can count on two hands the number of artists capable of filling a stadium that have emerged since 2000. Um, it's because it's all been about the playlist and about the individual song. So you don't have record labels spending time and effort developing an artist over two or three or four records until they finally break it big. It's like, okay, here's a song. Let's beat the crap out of it. And if there's no other song after that, well, that's fine because there's a billion other artists out there with good songs. So it's, uh, it's getting harder and harder to write uh, profiles of artists that have, in my view, any sort of longevity. Um, you know, one of the things I'm, I'm probably end up doing is a show on Imagine Dragons coming up because they're one of the very few along with Arcade Fire and a few others that have um, blown up in the 21st century. Otherwise it's just a bunch of one hit wonders. And that is really concerning. Yeah. Yeah. It's, it's, um, it's a different world. You know, we're, we're, uh, you and I, we're, we're 20th century music people and what seems normal to us will seem archaic and antiquated to the people who are recording the music podcasts of tomorrow to whom all of the stuff you just described seems perfectly normal and the way it ought to be. I guess that's just sort of the long and short of it. But in the meantime, um, here's to, uh, here's to 1000 and, uh, and, and however many more beyond that. Thank you so much for your time. I do appreciate you getting back to me. Um, an ongoing history of new music is the show that we've been talking about in large part. And your website is a journal of musical Thank you so much again, Alan Cross. Thank you for having me. Thanks again for being here. I hope you enjoyed the show. If this episode has whetted your appetite for music talk, I'm putting up a new episode of a show called I Heard These Guys Are Good on my Patreon. Listeners like you suggest music, and we all check it out together. Listen to this month's show. Next month, I could be listening to your music suggestions. Patreon.com slash Mike Tully. Hope to see you there. Patreon.com slash Mike Tully. 